Well, the title of tonight's sermon is A Monument and a Ceremony. A Monument and a Ceremony. We're going to be turning to chapter 27 of Deuteronomy and picking up a little bit at a little bit slower pace here again. It's I guess I can make no promises, but probably on a chapter-by-chapter basis again, after we kind of hustled through some specific practical instructions or applications that were unique in, in many ways or central anyway to the law of Moses or the law that the nation of Israel was directed to live under, the specific guidelines for their lives as it related to not only the moral law but the civil law and the ceremonial law and many of the instructions that flowed through that as directives that God in his love had given to the nation as a form of government, as a form of worship, giving them directives that would in fact allow them to not wander aimlessly so they would have some direction as to what it would mean to be a set apart, a peculiar, a unique, a holy people that could easily be identified as men and women of faith that in fact could be identified with thinking and then corresponding behavior that would be contrary to the thinking and the behavior of the world that was around the nation. And that by showing some of those contrasts as directed by God that it would actually attract people to the light of who he was so that people could be introduced to a life of faith as they would see the testimony of this set-apart nation of lights corporately. And of course, you can't have that corporate testimony without an individual response of faith to God and his plan and direction for the lives of his people. And so we had looked at kind of in summary fashion, a whole bunch of chapters there in the middle of the book of Deuteronomy that were focused on very specific applications. And we didn't spend a ton of time looking at them in a verse-by-verse way, but we drew out some applications and some principles that we could apply to our lives or that maybe would have some encouragement or be good reminders for us even in our day and age. Things that you could say are the underlying principle, although maybe not the context, was transdispensational, that it would carry over to all men and women of faith regardless of what time period they happen to be living in. Well, now as we pick up with chapter 27, it's going to begin the third and final sermon of Moses. Remember, if you recall all the way back to when we started this study in the book of Deuteronomy, that The subject matter of Deuteronomy was broken into a number of different parts, but primarily it was broken into three separate sermons. And those addresses to the people or sermons to the people were the way that the framework could be found or the structure could be found in the Deuteronomy. Then we understand that the very last chapters are going to involve a a farewell song, a blessing from Moses to the people, and then that will be the end of the book. So as we start this third and final sermon, we're going to see that Moses starts to look at things from a slightly different perspective as inspired or directed by God than what we had seen so far. So recall that the first address or the first sermon, it focused primarily on God's past acts. So God's past faithfulness. What has God done in the past and how would it benefit us to look back and be reminded of God's provision for us, his faithfulness towards us with all of these past events that we could look at. And so we noted that there's some value to looking backward, not from the sake of looking or wallowing in our mistakes and our errors and our failure, but looking back and seeing God's faithfulness, even as the song says, looking back, I can see your fingerprints upon my life, always seeking my best. And so that's effectively what Moses was seeking to do with that first sermon was to fixate or focus back on or remember it's a book of reminders it's a book of warnings for the future too but a book of reminders and so to remind them of God's past faithfulness and then the second sermon that we had looked at it focused or served as a review 
of the law generally and then a review of the law or certain aspects of the law anyway on a very more specific basis to go through and remind them again a book of reminder here is what God has laid out in terms of direction for your life and this would benefit you as I'm sort of winding down my life this is my my way of passing the torch, so to speak, to the next generation, I, I have this book of reminders, this book of warning, this book of sort of a summary of things that would be important to you going forward. Well, now this third sermon is going to focus more on the future, especially the application of this special covenant relationship that God has with the nation of Israel going forward going into the future. And we're going to see how even tonight it serves as like a renewal of sorts of that covenant. This, this is what God has said. This is, this is what God has attached by way of conditional aspects to that covenant. And this is, would benefit you. This should serve as a, a warning or an encouragement to serve the Lord, follow the Lord, because it will be in your best interests to do that. And so that will become the focus here of this third, or it is the focus of this third sermon. And the primary subject matter, again, is going to expand on some of the conditional aspects of the covenant. And it's going to be communicated in terms of there's blessings associated with heeding God's instructions, heeding God's blueprint, heeding God's direction for your life, and there's consequences associated with disregarding God's will, God's direction, God's instructions for your life. So you're ta- they're, they're talked about in terms of blessings and curse, but even that word curse just means as it's used in the Old Testament there in this context, it's not curse like we think of the word curse. It's, it's curse in the sense of identifying a negative consequence attached to doing a certain thing or not doing a certain thing. So in a sense then it has that sort of flavor of being a reminder of the negative effects or byproducts of not following God's instruction. So then as we start the chapter, the stage is going to be set here with symbolic reminders of this covenant relationship in the form of this physical monument that's going to be built and this elaborate participatory celebration. And that's a mouthful to say there, but this ceremony where the whole nation is going to participate in it. And one of the impacts of that is that by everybody participating in it and by building this physical monument, there's this reminder aspect to it. There's the, you can't look back now in the future and say, I didn't know. We, we weren't aware that serving the Lord would be a great blessing to us and rejecting the Lord would be detrimental to us. You can't look back and say, I I didn't know that. And that's sort of how this starts then is with this very symbolic, very illustrative expression of this relationship and God's desire and plan and blueprint for their lives. So let's take a look at it a little bit greater detail. It's sort of an interesting chapter. There's not much, I would say, by way of real direct application uh, to our lives, but I think, Lord willing, you'll still get some meat off the bone here and see some value to reviewing this chapter. Let's start with verse 1 of chapter 27. A transition in leadership is what I have this labeled as. Now Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. So again, you have this strong flavor in this covenant relationship of God is providing a fence of protection, if you will, around the people who are in some ways, not not in some ways, have this childlike relationship with their heavenly father. So God looks at them in love. Again, we've seen that love theme come out in a number of different places as we've crept up to this point in the book of Deuteronomy. God looks at his children wanting what is best for them and he says, I'm going to give you some barriers, if you will. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some guidelines that will help to direct you, that will help to give you some insights into what would be in your best interest as you go about living life. I'm not going to leave you without, I'm not going to leave you to your own devices. I'm going to be very specific with you about certain things that will be beneficial and certain things that will be then detrimental 
to you. Well, as we have this idea that Moses is passing off the scene, this verse 27, the thing to take away from it, not only is this, again, starting by focusing on God's instructions for their lives and the the importance of keeping those instructions or following or heeding those instructions. So that's such a strong theme in Deuteronomy. But above and beyond that, in the first part of the book, you have this phrase that you could glance past easily, but it says, Now Moses, with the elders of Israel. So Moses, in addition to someone else. Now nowhere else in Deuteronomy are the elders associated with Moses as a spokesperson for the people. It has sort of an unusual introduction there that it's Moses and the elders that are now commanding the people together. And you say, well, there's not not a lot to make of there. Well, it it speaks to this idea that Moses is about to pass off the scene. There's a few logical explanations for why now in his third sermon he's speaking in a more royal sense, in a more corporate sense. It's not just me, but myself and the rest of the leadership team which is going to necessarily have a lot greater role than they even had in the past as he passes off of the scene, we are all joining together in this exhortation that you would heed God's direction for your lives. And so you see that Moses' death, it's imminent. That's at least one possible reason for this sort of change in, in format as far as the message being presented this way. He's not going to be present for the instructions or for the events that he's instructing about, the building of a monument and this ceremony that we're going to get into. He's not going to be present. And so he wants to give some of that responsibility for following through with these instructions to the leadership of the entire nation, not just him in particular. And it's also, of course, going to serve to enhance the continuation of an authority structure after his death in addition to the passing of the torch to Joshua. So then the first part of this chapter after verse 1, we're going to see all of this detail about building a monument. So our title, A Monument and a Ceremony, this is the monument part. So let's read verses 2 through 10 to see what this is all about. Verse 2, And it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God has given you, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them with lime. You shall write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over, that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. Therefore it shall be when you have crossed over the Jordan that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones which I command you today and you shall whitewash them with lime. He's starting to repeat him, lime. He's starting to repeat himself. And you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar made of these stones. And you shall not use an iron tool on them. You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall offer peace offerings and shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. Verse 8, And you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. Then Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke to all Israel, saying, Take heed and listen, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. So there's quite a bit there. There's going to be this monument that is going to be constructed when the nation finally enters into the promised land after Moses is gone. This will be a future event. We're going to see that this does come to fruition. But a couple of observations. When you see verse 2, it says, on the day when you cross over the Jordan. And the idea that you kind of get there is the very first thing that you shall do when you cross over is this. You know, it's not that Think of all of this pent-up anticipation that's been built up with this second generation waiting on this opportunity to finally enter into this land that's flowing with milk and honey that God had promised to their parents, to the first generation, that because of their unbelief they had not been allowed into the land, that Moses himself is not going to be allowed into the land. And now here they are on the cusp of finally 
taking advantage of what God has been promising for so long. And God says, when you get there, don't worry about conquering the first city. Don't worry about building the first house. Don't worry about the first bit of the goodness of the land that you can participate in or take advantage of. Worry about getting your eyes oriented to me. Set up an altar. Rejoice in who you are as my people. Rejoice in your spiritual standing as men and women of faith. Celebrate that as the very first thing that you do so that you don't lose sight of it in a land of plenty. Now, I'll say this. The more plentiful the land is, the easier it is to forget God and his goodness and his blessing in your life. I, that's not a huge carryover correlation, but I would say we experience that all the time. We live in a land of such plenty and such goodness and such blessing and abundance that is far beyond the standard of life in most places that it's easy to lose track of the one who we're supposed to be fixated on. We put him second to all of the cares of the world, all of the accumulation of things, our careers, our homes, our activities, our hobbies. It's very easy to take God from the place of preeminence that he ought to be in and relegate him to something less than that. In fact, to do so is to be human, but it's more of a temptation to do so when there are so many things vying for that position of preeminence. And Moses knows that. And God knows that. And so what does he say? Very first thing you do, set up this monument to remind you that you're a people, a chosen, special, peculiar, holy, set-apart people that I've put on earth for a very specific reason, to be lights for me. So you don't forget that. And you think of different ways that that is, that we're reminded in our lives. It's not with a monument. That's not, not something that we have in our yards. God didn't call us in the church age to build monuments in our yards. But how many of you have a Bible verse on the wall of your home? A bunch of you, right? Got the show of hands. I got one right next to my bed every night before I go to sleep, right right on actually my side of the bed now after we've moved. It used to be center, but now it's on my side. I think Station maybe thought I needed it a little bit more. But I will lay me down in peace and sleep. Yeah. I'm a person who by nature is prone to anxiety, prone to worry, prone to overthinking things. God knows that. And so he put, <laughs> put that verse right on the wall. It's a monument of sorts to remind me this isn't about you. You're, you're my child. You're a man of faith first and foremost, not, not somebody who's prone to anxiety and worry. Now you may have other monuments. You talk about different ways that you can be reminded of different things. I'm not saying that, that the monuments themselves should become the fixation, but you might have a cue card on your dash of your car. You might have a memory verse app on your phone that reminds you. It's a monument that reminds you of the things of faith. You may have the Word of God set in a place that you notice it often. So in any event, that wasn't really the application, but it, the idea is promote the importance of remembering the framework behind all this. Remember that this isn't something happening in a vacuum. It's God that is providing for you and never forget that. So set up this monument that will help you to remember that. Now the second phrase that I think is in verse, also in verse 2, but it's a, it's a phrase that I think has a bunch to it. It says this, this is the land which the Lord your God is giving you, is giving you. So do this right away. Don't make this secondary, make this primary. But God is the one who's giving you this land. Now, you would say, wait a second, God had already given them this land. But the focus here is on them finally appropriating a promise that had been made to Abraham long before them. See, the delay in them entering into this rest, this practical appropriation of a positional a fixed positional truth. It was a fixed fact that God had given them this land, but they haven't, hadn't enjoyed that rest yet. They hadn't entered into that land because they were constantly sidelined by a lack of trust in God and a lack of faith. And in fact, 
if we were just foreshadow, will know that they never did enjoy the land completely in faith the way that God intended. Just like in our lives, we never completely enjoy God's rest the way that he intends because we don't trust him enough. We, we never, that's a, a part of Christian maturity. That's a part of growing over time. That's, that's a, a part of that progressive sanctification that we're hopefully moving more and more in that direction over time, but we'll never fully arrive there till we're glorified. But God's will for your life, God's will for my life, is that we would learn to trust him more and more. As we learn to trust him more and more, what will we experience? A greater and greater measure or measure. Say she was just giving me a little bit of grief about that. I, I, don't, I didn't plan on picking on her tonight. Measure or measure of rest. A greater and greater measure of rest as we grow in our faith and learn to trust him more. So that's, well, that's sort of the idea here when is giving to you. It's, there's this indirect application, of course, to our lives in that way too. They refuse to trust the Lord. Now he's talking about a present state of being, a present realization of something that was a fixed promise in the past. Now think about our present appropriation or practical application of something that is a fixed truth in our lives. Well, a couple of verses came to my mind. So when you're talking about, again, not a direct application, an indirect application, but Second Peter 1.4, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. That's a statement of fact. That already happened. That's a fixed reality. By, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, meaning you won't automatically have that outcome be true. If you don't put into practice or appropriate the promise that's in front of you, you won't in that moment be partaking of the divine nature the way that God intended for you. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, past tense. He blessed us with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So positionally, have you been blessed with every spiritual blessing? Yes. But practically, are you appropriating by faith as a present state of being, are you appropriating by faith the full measure of those blessings that are available to you? And the answer is, not if you've got your eyes on yourself. Not if you have your focus on the circumstances around you. Not if you're walking with an ear towards the world's viewpoint and the world's way of thinking. Not if you're focused on the difficulties and the trials and, your, and the obstacles that are in your path. Not then. But you are and you will be practically appropriating the positional truths that are a fixed reality as a positional fact in your life, you'll be actually entering into that rest and taking advantage of the impact that was intended by those blessings when you can get your eyes off of the horizontal and onto the vertical, getting your focus on him. So, again, that's not, that's not exactly, Moses doesn't make as big of a deal about this as I just did, but it's there that they're being reminded that this isn't you providing this rest for yourself. It's God that is giving you this land and he's doing it in a practical way as you would step up by faith now and appropriate what had already been promised so long ago. Now what the last part of this section gets into now the details of this monument. So it's a little harder to, to make the specific application here but what are to our lives, but what are some of these details that we read about here? Well, it involves assembling as a people on Mount Ebal. So it says, It shall be when you have crossed over the Jordan that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones which I command you today and you shall whitewash them with lime. But it starts with, you shall assemble there. That that's where this is going to take place. Now, what do we know? A couple of things. This Now we're getting more into historical details. So for those of you who like that, this is your you're part of the sermon here tonight. It's a place that is near Shechem. It's near the area of Shechem. It's about 35 miles north of Jerusalem is with where this Mount Ebal is. Now, some of these things are not set in stone in terms of 
a mountain is made out of stone, but it's not set in stone as far as the historical data or that these things are agreed to by everyone. So I just say that as a little bit of a disclaimer. But it, it seems like from what I could research, most seem to agree that it's, it's in Shechem or it's very near Shechem and it's 35 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, that is fascinating. When I read that or I saw that in my study, what do we know about Shechem? And, and perhaps this is why God chose this mountain as the place to make this monument or have this monument built. Well, what we know about Shechem is that Shechem is the first place that Abraham settled for a short time when he came into the land of promise. In Shechem, he built an altar. In Shechem, he had God renew his covenant promise about this land being Abraham's and his descendants' land. That happened in Shechem. And you can read that in Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. I'm going to read it to you if you want to. I'll give you a couple of seconds if you want to turn there. I know some of you like to do the page turning, and that's good. Hopefully you haven't forgotten where Genesis is. It's the very first book in the Bible. But in the 12th chapter there, we'll look at these verses 6 and 7 if you want to have them in front of you while I read it. And if you don't, just you can just sit back and relax. I'm going to read them to you. But... Since they're not on the screen, if that's something that you like to do, I'll just let you do that. Okay, it says this in verse 6 of chapter 12. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Now while he's there, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So just an interesting detail there is that the passage doesn't tell us why God chose this mountain for the monument, but kind of interesting that right there in Shechem is where God renewed that covenant promise to Abram. Abram, Abraham, same guy. And then the other thing to note is that this, because we're going to talk about Mount Gerizim as when it comes to this ceremony that they're going to do, Mount Gerizim is approximately one mile away. So effectively there's a valley between the two and you have Mount Ebal and then you have Mount Gerizim, Gerizim and we'll get into that a little bit later. Now, also note that when it comes to the ceremony, Mount Ebal is going to be the mountain that the curses are directed toward in the ceremony that follows. So directed toward or from, depending on how you look at it, the people are going to be on the mountain. They're going to be responding to what is said to them. As far as I can gather, we'll get to that when we get to the ceremony. The Levites that are speaking those things are going to be doing it from sort of the middle and then directing some of the, the blessing aspects of it towards Mount Gerizim and the other aspects of it to the curse or the, the warning aspects of it to Mount evil. So I don't know. I don't think you've got to try to come up with an explanation for everything, but it's intended to represent a disobedient response to God. So that mountain is going to end up representing a rejection of God's plan. So you're going to have a visual reminder, not just in the monument, but in the ceremony that will follow where Mount Ebal is going to be associated with disregarding God's instructions and the consequences associated with that and Mount Gerizim is going to be identified as a very visible landmark reminder of the blessings that are associated with heeding God's direction for their lives. So then they're going to build an altar, verses 5 and 6. They're going to build this altar. And that's commonly, as you go through the Old Testament, associated with coming to any new place. And you ask, well, what, what can I make of that? Well, nothing land-breaking perhaps, but I would say this, it sort of serves as a nice way to place matters of faith as central in your focus and priorities when you were to come to somewhere new. And that's what happens here. That's why this monument is to be made now. Verse 2b, and it repeated a second time in, in verse 4, this altar that is made out of rocks is supposed to be whitewashed or plastered. It would have a whitish type of 
appearance. We see that in 2b. Now, why is that? I think is, as much as anything, it makes writing that you would put on it more visible. And so then we see that in verse 3, they're to write all the words of the law on this monument that's being built. Now, there's some debate about what exactly all the words of the law means. Does it, does, is it to be taken literally to mean the entire law or even the instructions from Deuteronomy? Is all of that on there or is it just a way of referring to the Ten Commandments that were inscribed in stone and that that's supposed to be what is written on it. I, don't, I didn't have the, the time to research that to some great extent, and I don't think it matters. The primary point is that there's a, being created here a visual record of God's instructions, a, physical, a visible representation of the importance of trusting God. This visible monument that would remind the people that without him, there is no success. Just like Jesus will say in John 15 that without me you can do nothing. A very visible reminder of the importance that should be placed on trusting God and walking by faith in dependence on his direction for their lives. So then you think about even why would this be highlighted? If, if the focus is just or the purpose is just to highlight how important it is to follow God's directives for your life, to trust that he knows better than you do, can you overemphasize that? And I think the answer is no. The takeaway even in our lives is that heeding God's plan, purpose, and direction for your life is critical to your success. It's critical to your thriving in your spiritual life. It's critical to enjoying life the way that God intended. And the best reminder of that is the Word of God. And you see, we don't have inscribed stones or a altar that has these words written on it, but we have the written Word of God in our hands. We have it on our phones. We have easy access to it. And what is the thing that then continuously reminds us as we read it that without me operating independently from me, you're going to Not enjoy the life I have planned for you. Your life is going to be a disaster. Apart from me, trying to do life on your own, whether it's first tense salvation, it's second tense salvation, and so forth, you're not going to be successful. You need to learn to trust me, to operate in dependence on me. You need my direction for your life. Your own direction for your life will get you nowhere. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. And he does that through his word. And that's why in Deuteronomy we have that emphasis on training your children into what the word of God says. Repeating these things as you go about your day. Not not repeating these other things that ultimately are tied to man's wisdom that cannot be sourced in the word of God. Don't go around repeating those things. Go around repeating the things that come from God himself which are completely reliable, that are not subject to any question as to how useful or beneficial they would be to your life. And you think about all the things that you take in, all of the things that you spit out or repeat, And if it's not, I'm not talking about all of the time, every word you speak. I'm just saying as a general pattern, if your interest and your focus of what you take in and then what spills from you as the Spirit of God directs in your life, if it isn't God's truth, you're missing the mark. I'm not guessing at that. I'm telling you that's what the Word of God says. You're missing the mark if that's not what's flowing from you. God wants to get a hold of your thinking. He wants to make some changes in you. He wants you to reprioritize your thinking and your life and your words and your messaging if that isn't true of you. So give it to the Lord in prayer. Think about that. Meditate on that. So then you see that that is ultimately what is done here. These words of God's law, the word of God itself, is written on this altar. Now what happens in verse 7 I think is fascinating. Offer peace offerings... And eat there, but catch this, and rejoice before the Lord your God. Sometimes you think about, you know, this worship is it's under some cloud of condemnation or it's under a cloud of judgment or it's under this cloud of, you know, like 
what is it, Jonathan Edwards or Edward Taylor, one or the other, sinners at the hands of an angry God. This, this cloud of God is not pleased and, and God is out to get me and God is out to condemn me and God is out to judge me. That's not even the worship you're reading here with a God who is putting himself on full display as the one who provides for his people. That's what he's putting on display. Yes, he's, he's revealing his character. Yes, there's this covenant relationship. Yes, there are specific consequences in time physically and spiritually associated with disregarding him. But that's not, it's not, the focus isn't on this fearful relationship. It's the focus is on a respectful relationship that is characterized by rejoicing and thankfulness and gratitude at God's provision for their every need in life. And I think it's fascinating that you see that there in verse 7. Entering into God's place of rest should be joyful. That should, that should be joyful in our lives too. Now, the people actually did this. These are the instructions that are given. The people actually did this when they came into the promised land. And that can't be said about a lot of the things they were instructed to do in the book of Deuteronomy. Many of them they did not do. Many of the warnings they did not heed. Many of the things that God said would benefit them, they disregarded. But this they actually did. So if you read in Genesis, uh, Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 32, it says this, Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Gold star for the nation of Israel. They did this when they came into the promised land. Then we have what I have labeled as more repetition to wrap up this section of the chapter. More repetition. It's another call to take heed and listen. And I've already sort of beat on this drum a bunch here tonight, so we're just going to fly through that kind of quickly. But take heed and listen is the summary of what verses 9 and 10 are all about. You see, the result of hearing and listening what God has to say for your life from the perspective of faith that I am convinced that God knows best and I am convinced that God is good and I am convinced that God is for me. When that is true, the result of that would be obeying and observing what God has to say to you. And that's what the sequence is that's relayed in verses 9 and 10 here too. Take heed and listen and if you do that in faith, the result should be that you would obey and observe. And then you see this. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Now this can't have anything to do with position because they already were God's peculiar, chosen, set-apart, holy people. So that's not what it's referring to. I think it's another reference to practical appropriation of this position they already had. It's another way of symbolizing this covenant renewal of in this moment in time, in this present state of being, move forward by faith. As you go into this next chapter in this history of as a na- your history as a nation, allow yourselves to be characterized as the people of the Lord your God, a personal God, your God. And the reason I'm convinced that that's likely the focus there is in this little section here, there's at least 10 references to I am your God and you are my people. That type of language. See, covenant language, chosen people language, you'll find it if you go through there 10 times where there's various ways of saying your God, the Lord your God, the Lord your God, the Lord your God. The Lord your God, the Lord your God. Just in those first 10 verses, approximately, not approximately, more than, at least 10 times I counted, where he's effectively saying, I'm your God, you're my people. Do you see yourself that way? No, you're not the nation of Israel. No, you're not, you're not under the Mosaic law. You're not a part of this conditional covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. The church hasn't replaced Israel. Israel's promises that were made by God to them will be fulfilled. They'll be fulfilled literally. Many of them already have. That's not the point. The point is, though, you are a child of God. 
He has called you as a part of the church to a very special mission to lift him up and put the light on him. And is that how you see him? As your personal God? As your friend? As the one who knows best? As the one who wants what is best for you? As the one who loves you desperately? As the one who is good? Not some of the time, all of the time. And Eric, and when he fills in for me in a, a, a bit, he's going to be speaking about God's goodness and God's mercy. Do you see God that way? It's very personal, though, the way that's laid out there in those verse, first 10 verse, verses of chapter 27 here. Now we have to move on to the ceremony and we have to move a little faster. So we had this monument and now we're going to have this ceremony all with the idea of the symbolism associated with following after God's direction, following after and recognizing this special covenant relationship that they had with God and the blessings associated with trusting God and the consequences associated with not trusting God. So Moses is now going to describe a ceremony that is to accompany the monument building. And this is going to take up the rest of the, the chapter, verses 11 through 26. Now, remember, the whole thing is intended to be this reminder of the benefits of serving the Lord. Don't read more into it than that. It, it's Here's a reminder of why it will benefit you to serve the Lord and here's a warning of the consequences associated with rejecting him. And so the way the ceremony is going to go is in verse 12. It says that the tribes of Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin, they're going to stand on Mount Gerizim as the blessings are going to be pronounced. Then in verse 13, God chose the tribes of Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali to stand on the Mount Ebal as the curses are pronounced or the warnings are pronounced to all of Israel. So there's verses 12 and 13. A bunch of authors have made some effort to try to discern why God picked which tribes for which mountains. I don't see any way to comfortably say that that can be ascertained. But some have have tried. You could look into that a little bit yourself. But here we have the nation split into two sides. Uh, I don't think there's got to be anything more to it than there's two potential choices in front of you every day. You can choose to heed God's instruction, which is a byproduct of faith, and let him direct your lives. Or you can choose, here's two monuments to look at. Here's two mountains to look at. You can look over here and you can choose to reject God's plan and blueprint and direction for your life and then you'll you'll suffer the consequences that are associated with that. I think it's a beautiful picture of this. You have these two separate groups of people. They're actually going to end up standing at the base or in front of these mountains. We said they're about a mile apart, and it actually happens in Joshua 8.33b. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them were in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. So in some ways, the whole thing is referred to as a blessing. That's what I mean by you shouldn't read too much into the word curse because the curse is a warning. It's a reminder of the negative consequences associated with rejecting God. That's a blessing to be reminded of that. And so there's this very clear picture, half and half, two different mountains separated by approximately a mile. There's been all of these efforts to recreate this done where in fact according to a number of different sources that I read today and yesterday and and the day before but I, I read at least three or four of them that say this has been recreated where in fact because of the geography because of the way the land is structured there's this amplify I can't say the word amphitheater effect where if one is to stand in the dead center of this and people are to stand on either side of this so now a half a mile from there that they can in fact hear the words that are being spoken if it's done loudly like this is said to, said to be done from both of those, the bases of both of those mountains. I haven't tried it myself. Maybe it would be a fun field trip for us as a church family but apparently that is true. And regardless Others have said that doesn't even matter if that were true, but it is apparently true. The, the way that messages were communicated in these settings throughout the course of the nation of Israel is it would be passed down the line. You would have people standing separated out a certain distance and they would just keep 
pushing it out to the, the far side so that everyone would get the message, but it would be done as like a ripple effect as that message would be communicated further and further out from the original source of the message. That's a purely a passing thought here. So as I understand it here, the speaking of the Levite seems to come from the middle. And the curses are directed at Mount Ebal, and the blessings are directed at Mount Gerizim. And you see a little bit of that in verse 14. The Levites are the ones speaking with a loud voice. And they're saying to all of the men of Israel. So you have this kind of a thing where standing in the middle is how it's, it's pictured from my perspective. Are the Levites, and they're saying this, directing their focus of certain things, the blessing parts of it, to Mount Gerizim, directing the warnings or the curse parts of it to Mount Ebal. So I, I hope you're picturing it. It's unknown why God chose these particular mountains as symbols of his blessing and curses. Perhaps it is just that they're so close together and you actually can speak from the middle and be heard on both mountains. It doesn't tell us, so we won't go too much more into that. Now Moses is now going to focus on the curse warning or warning aspects of the law that's read in verses 15 through 26. I'm not going to cover them because that is not the full substance even of what ended up being communicated. Nobody knows, I I couldn't find any source that could identify where if there's blessings and curses associated with this ceremony and they're directed to one mountain or the other, why does Moses only verbalize with specificity, these particular 12 warnings. And there's various opinions about it. None of them were so compelling to me that I thought they were worth repeating to you specifically, but they deal with a variety of different topics, these 12 things. The curses include, uh, were leveled against those who practiced idolatry, dishonored their parents, took advantage of the vulnerable, withheld justice, committed murder, took bribes, or committed various sexual sins. And then the last one is a catch-all. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them. So in case you were to think that this wasn't something you ought to be on guard about, that this isn't a warning that would apply to you, boom, there you have it in verse 26. It's going to apply to everyone who doesn't observe all of the words of this law. So that's something everybody needs to be on guard about. That's something that was going to be verbalized to the entire nation as they gathered to have this ceremony that would serve as this reminder of where their focus ought to be as they come into God's rest. It ought to be on him. It ought to be a life lived by faith. It ought to be a life that is heeding God's direction for their lives. And if that is the case, they'll experience the blessings associated with that, which we'll get into in the next chapter, and or they'll experience the consequences of rejecting God by rejecting his word, which will also be covered in the next chapters that we'll get into. So I'm not going to get into it more here tonight, but those are the 12 things that are listed. I think at least eight or nine of them come straight from the Ten Commandments. So why did he pick those specific things? I can't tell you, but I will say this. To each of those things, to each of these warnings, and I would go so far as to say, and presumably also to each of the blessings, because this is not a, a record of all that happened, that what was going to happen is that blessings were going to be directed to, toward one, Gerizim, Mount Gerizim. The others would be directed, the warnings, to Mount Ebal. We know that because through writing, More is talked about in the next chapters about the blessings and curses and that is the purpose of the ceremony would be to remind the people of the positive and negative effects or relationship to either heeding God or rejecting God. And so there would have been both but what you see in all of these examples is the people were to respond with the word amen. Amen. A definite amen. That would be, I I believe, to include the blessings too. Now, it's tantamount to saying we formally accept the terms and we agree to all that is being said here. I agree with that. We agree with what's being said. So if, say, can I get an amen? What that means even in our day is, are you, can I get somebody to say, yeah, I agree with you, brother. I agree with what just was said. I throw my support behind that very principle or that very notion, and that's the idea here. Make a choice. Is this something that we 
it, it also you have this renewal of the covenant aspect to it too, but are, are we all in agreement that God knows best and that these things will have negative things, uh, consequences associated with them and these things will have positive ramifications associated with them? And so that's the picture that you have here. Now, central to the ceremony and all of this symbolism and all this visual illustration, the primary emphasis is placed on God's word. That's the thing not to be lost in this. The people were confronted with the words of the law in its entirety, and we see that in Joshua eight thirty four through 35, and this is where we're going to end. But afterward, after this was done, he read all the words of the law the blessings and the cursing according to all that is written in the book of the law. So what is the emphasis? The emphasis is on the word of God as it was communicated to God's people. This was a way to publicly be a part of participatory inclusion into this concept that if we would heed what is written here, we will thrive in time due to the conditional nature of the covenant and spiritually in, in eternity, also in time, but in eternity. It goes on to say, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. That included the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. Just another reminder that within this nation, there were pilgrims and strangers that had become a part of the nation, that had been attracted to the nation, that had been added to the mixed multitude of this nation. There were strangers there too that were not, were not by birth Israelites or Jewish. So that you have them mentioned there again. Now, in all of this, as we wind down here tonight, the focus is on God's grace. I hope you saw that. The focus of all of it is God's grace because he's reminding and warning his people over and over and over again, just like he reminds us of the consequences of disobedience. Now, what is he really talking about? He's really talking about, you will not thrive if you live life apart from me. What have we been talking about in 1 John as we talk about the maximum joy being experienced in the Christian's life if he will live life in intimacy of relationship with God in time? That that's where life is lived. That's where joy can be found in your presence is where fullness of joy is found. There's so many correlations here even though the specific subject matter here, a monument and a ceremony, eh, not particularly compelling in and of itself. It's not scintillating per se. But what a great reminder of God's grace as he reminds us that living life apart from him is not good. And the focus in all of it is on their spiritual well-being as he warns them and reminds them that don't stray from me. Don't, don't go another path. Stay, stay with me. Include me in this. Trust me in this. You see, well-being, when you think about your well-being, his focus is on their spiritual well-being, and well-being is always tied to trusting him, walking as he directs, and heeding his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we can spend together. Thank you for this chapter that we're able to look at in Deuteronomy. Pray that it would benefit those that were here in attendance and those that maybe will listen online at some point in the future. Pray that we would keep our eyes on you. Pray that we would trust you enough to know that apart from you, we're not going to experience life the way you intended. We're not going to thrive. We are not going to have the well-being that you want for us spiritually or even in this context physically. Pray that that could have been a good, a good reminder, a good warning that we could even have our hearts and souls renewed and our, even our thinking challenged by these words tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.